So, uh, last week we talked, we finished the six uh, far-reaching practices, the six perfections, and we talked about meditative stability and also wisdom. And so this week we go on to the four ways of um, attracting others, or the four ways of gathering disciples, which is what you do as you're practicing the six perfections in order to benefit sentient beings. So we'll go into that, and then the text goes into the last two um, far-reaching practices in detail. So it goes into meditative stability in, in more depth, and then also wisdom in more depth. And as it so happens, many of you were here for the last weekend, where we had the teachings on meditative stability. So this will be a good review for you. So you can hear it twice before you forget it. (laughs) Okay. So let's first start with um, watching our breath for a few minutes, letting our mind settle down, and then we'll do the visualization as usual, and then go into the teachings. space in front of you, visualize the Buddha, made of light, surrounded by all the other Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and around you all the sentient beings. sentient beings in taking refuge, generating bodhicitta and so forth. So think about the meaning of what you're saying. I take refuge until I have awakened in the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. By the merit I create by engaging in generosity. And the other far-reaching practices may I attain Buddhahood in order to benefit all sentient beings. I take refuge until I have awakened in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. By the merit I create by engaging in generosity. And the other far-reaching practices, may I attain Buddhahood 
in order to benefit all sentient beings. I take refuge until I have awakened in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. By the merit I create by engaging in generosity and the other far-reaching practices, may I attain Buddhahood in order to benefit all sentient beings. May all sentient beings have happiness in its causes. May all sentient beings be free of suffering in its causes. May all sentient beings not be separated from sorrowless bliss. May all sentient beings abide in equanimity, free of bias, attachment, and anger. Reverently I prostrate with my body, speech, and mind, and present clouds of every type of offering, actual and mentally transformed. I confess all my destructive actions accumulated since beginning this time and rejoice in the virtues of all holy and ordinary beings. Please remain until cyclic existence ends and turn the wheel of Dharma for sentient beings. I dedicate all the virtues of myself and others to the Great Awakening. This ground anointed with perfume Flowers to Mount Meru, for land, sun, and moon, imagined as a Buddha land and offered to you. May all beings enjoy this pure land. Yeah. 
sake of all mother sentient beings, may I quickly attain complete and perfect Buddhahood. For that purpose, may I assemble all sentient beings by one, being generous, two, speaking pleasantly, correcting and caring for them and explaining the teachings to them. Three, implementing the aim by encouraging them to practice the content of the teachings. And four, by being consistent with the aim by practicing what I teach others. Thanks to these good ways of helping others, may I lead all sentient beings to the path of progress and liberation. Guru Buddha, please inspire me to be able to do so. In response to your requesting the Guru Buddha, five-colored light and nectar stream from all the parts of his body into you through the crown of your head. The light and nectar absorb into your body and mind and also into those of all sentient beings around you. The light and nectar purify all your negativities and obscurations accumulated since beginningless time. And especially purifies all illness, interferences, negativities, and obscurations that interfere with correctly training in the practice of the four ways of assembling. Your body becomes translucent, the nature of light. All your good qualities, lifespan, merit, and so forth expand and increase. Think in particular that a superior realization of correct training in the four ways of gathering disciples has arisen in your mind stream and in the mind streams of others.
Okay, so um, when we went through the six foraging uh, practices, that's to ripen and develop our own mind, to mature our own mind in the Dharma practice. And then this one, the practice of the four methods of gathering disciples, is to ripen the mind streams of others. And so having practiced the six perfections and while we're practicing them, then, you know, our, our virtue increases, our ability increases, our understanding increases, and, uh, you know, of course, because based on a bodhicitta motivation, then we want to be able to share this with other sentient beings so that they can also, um, you know, practice the Dharma and free themselves from samsara. And so to do this, we have to have good relationships with sentient beings. You can't just grab somebody off the street corner and say, I'm going to teach you the Dharma, you know. So uh, there has to be a way of very naturally attracting disciples, but attracting them in a way that's very sincere. You know, you're not trying to get disciples for the sake of having disciples. You're not trying to create, you know, become a rock star with a, a bunch of groupies trailing after you. Okay? So uh, it has to be done in a very sincere way and in a way that's in accord with the Dharma. Otherwise, attracting other people, um, you know, basically corrupts our own practice. Because uh, other people start looking at you, then they think, wow, you're fantastic, you must be Buddha. They, you know, start looking at you with these big eyes and hanging on every word you say. And then, of course, you know, if you're not a realized being, you know, all this intention kind of goes to your head. And uh, it produces some pretty weird dynamics whereby, you know, the students are in one way spoiling the teacher by pampering them and looking at them, you know, like they're just, you know, like that. And then, of course, the teacher feels the pressure to, uh, you know, to keep up the big facade that the, that the disciples are projecting on them. And then it's also easy for the teachers to start feeling, oh, if they're looking at me like that, then I must be really hot stuff. And then that leads to the teacher, you know, getting a big head and overstepping proper boundaries. Okay. So it leads to, uh, you know, corruption. And, you know, it's not just coming from the side of the teacher. It's also coming from the students, the way the students treat the teacher, you know. Because it's one thing to respect somebody and to listen closely to what they say and take it seriously and really put the teachings into practice. There's that. And then there's, you know, looking at a teacher like they're a movie star or a sports hero and just going, you know, goo-goo-ga-ga over them and running around buying them everything, uh, you know, that they could possibly want, Rolex watches and, 
you know, who knows what else, you know, and even buying them things they don't want, um, you know, and then that can kind of spoil the teacher. So here, you know, when we go through these four, which I outlined in the meditation, you see that it's done in a very careful way, and the whole time the teacher needs to really keep their integrity and the disciples need to do as well, okay? So it has to come first and foremost from having um, a very sincere motivation to help others and to be a benefit to others, not to collect offerings and to get a good reputation. So, you know, bottom line is just really caring for other beings and then wanting to share the teachings with them out of affection and care so that, you know, they can avoid going to the lower realms and so that they can get out of cyclic existence. So, okay, so the first thing we, we do, you know, in this process of, of uh, you know, you don't, and it's not like you say, okay, I woke up this morning, I think I'm going to attract a bunch of disciples. <laughs> you know, it's not like that. It's just, you know, as it happens, as you're practicing, yeah, then your abilities increase and then you get put in situations where people, you know, can kind of notice your good qualities and, and so on. So it's not like you have to go around um, showing off or dreaming up good qualities to attract people. I remember Sirkham Rinpoche, the new one, when he was quite young, we were talking about this kind of thing. And he said, you know, if somebody's a good cook, uh, they don't need to go around and tell everybody what they're a good cook, that they're a good cook. All they need to do is just cook, and then people will taste it and see that it's good. You know, so they don't need to self-advertise. So these four ways of assembling disciples are not a way of self-advertising. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah, but they're ways of, of um, being aware that when we're in public settings, um, people may look to us for guidance and so how to behave in a way whereby we can become a good example and can give proper guidance. So, of course, the main part of the guidance uh, depends on our own practice, you know, studying the teachings and reflecting on them and meditating them. That's the basic thing. Without that, you know, nothing else <laughs> makes any sense, really. Okay. But, so, but the first thing we do is to be generous because people are attracted by generosity. And so if we're a generous person, then, and, you know, yeah, we're just a generous person. It doesn't mean you go around giving away tons of money and all sorts of extravaganzas to gather a bunch of disciples. <laughs> but it, it means that just from your heart, as you are, you're a generous person. And then, of course, people are attracted for that reason. And then on the basis of that, the second thing, and this is the, you know, where you really get into thing, things that are important, then you, um, you speak pleasantly, so you're, you're friendly to them, 
um, you know, you give them good advice, so it says correcting them and caring for them, so you speak in a pleasant way, give them good advice or give them good counsel, you know, not pushing anything on them, not telling people how to live their lives or giving advice when they don't ask. You know, especially in the West, it's uh, always better to wait for people to ask you. In Asia, people tend to have a lot of respect for the monastics, so sometimes you can slip things in, in a, you know, to, to benefit them. But in the West, people uh, don't like receiving advice unless they ask for it, so we usually wait, you know, until people ask. Uh, and then, you know, you give guidance and so on. And then you also explain the teachings to them. Yeah, so this might be, you know, in just a casual thing of talking to somebody who asks for advice, or it might be, you know, in a situation where you're formally teaching. Yeah, but this is the actual thing, the actual part of giving the Dharma to somebody. But you see the first step, being being generous, is something that, you know, and being friendly, then people kind of notice and they're initially attracted. Yeah, then that gives you an open door to teach them. If you're mean and uncooperative and cynical and sarcastic, people aren't going to be attracted to you. And even though you may know the teachings very well, um, you know, your personality is going to turn people off. Okay. And it'll make them wonder, you know, how much you're practicing, too, if you're really cynical and rude and so on. Okay? And so teach them. And then the third one is by um, implementing the aim, by encouraging them to practice the content of the teachings. So you not only teach them, but you encourage them to practice. So you remind them to go over the notes after the teaching and before the next teaching. You remind them to write down the important points. At, you remind them to meditate on them, on the important points. You remind people to discuss the teachings so that they can have a good understanding. You know, whether they do or not, you have no control. Okay, but you try and guide them and encourage them and let them know that yes, they have the Buddha potential. No, it's not the case that everybody else has Buddha nature, but they got left out. You know, uh, <laughs> that everybody can practice the Dharma, everybody can, can make progress. It's a thing of, of making the effort and so on. So you encourage people, yeah, after you teach them. And then the fourth is here they said by um, being consistent with the aim by practicing what you teach. In other words, not being a, a hypocrite and practicing what you preach. Yeah. So whatever you're, you're instructing others to do, then you should also do your best to practice it yourself. So you may not be Buddha, you may not even be a high bodhisattva, but definitely, you know, if you're guiding others, you should do your best to practice yourself. And whatever you're teaching them to, to do, you should also do yourself. Okay. So, um, yeah, I've noticed in some situations, you know, sometimes when people 
get into the position of teachings, then sometimes this last one gets a little blurred, you know. Um, it's interesting because in some different situations I've uh, roomed with different Buddhist teachers and, you know, at conferences and so on. And so it's very interesting to see which ones get up and do their practice and which ones get up and just get dressed and go out. And, or if they um, do their practice for a long time or a short time, um, you know, what they're reading, what they're thinking about, you know, because when you share a room with somebody, you talk with them a lot. So, uh, you know, there, there you can really see that sometimes it's quite easy to have one persona when you're in the teaching role and then kind of let your hair down as they say, even though you don't have any, when you're, <laughs> when you're uh, not in a teaching role. So it shouldn't really be like that. You know, we should practice uh, as well as we can and practice what we teach uh, to, other, to other living beings and to be an example as we can, you know. Not to be a, a hypocrite and tell them to do something that we don't, yeah. But... Also, you know, it's a fine line because sometimes you're teaching, you know, you're giving the whole expansive, extensive teaching and you're not at the place yet where you can do the whole thing, you know, exactly as it's being explained, but to at least to try your best to do that, okay? And, uh, and so in this way, uh, somebody after, you know, they've practiced the six perfections or as they're practicing them, then they can begin to share the Dharma with others and ripen others' minds. And so that's really, um, when you do that, it's quite a privilege. Yeah. I remember during one of the um, Western Buddhist teachers' meetings with His Holiness, that's now over 20 years ago, um, but somebody asked the question and said, you know, kind of when you're teaching, uh, you know, you're explaining the, the, the ultimate way to practice and to be, and yet you're not like that. And when you're, when you're with your friends, then, you know, they don't tell you how to practice uh, when, when you're kind of off-duty, so to speak. Yeah. And... Uh, and His Holiness said, well, you're never really off-duty. Yeah, as a Dharma practitioner, you're never off-duty. It's never like you get a break from samsara. Uh, you know, if you got a break from samsara, then you could take a break from Dharma practice, but you don't get a break from samsara. And so uh, he said, again, the same thing, that you do your best to practice what you teach, acknowledging your own limitations and so forth. Yeah. But, uh, you know, because this person's question was kind of like, well, they teach us how the high bodhisattvas practice, but none of us are high bodhisattvas. So what's the kind of middle level of practice? You know, we don't want to be kind of ordinary worldly people, but we're not at the point where we can be the high bodhisattvas. So how, you know, how do we really practice and, make, you know, and be a balanced human being? And His Holiness said, you know, you just do the best you can. You just practice what you're capable of practicing. 
and you know really try and keep good ethical conduct as good as you can and realize that you're not perfect but you know can continue to do your practice and uh, he encouraged people to be humble and he encouraged people to um, to have friends Dharma friends that they can talk things over with because sometimes when you're in the position of being a teacher if you have difficulties it's not really suitable to talk over the difficulties with the students but it's important to have a support group that you can and so he said to really you know have other Dharma friends that uh, do that you know and so those may be uh, not, not put your hair down with, but it's, you know, you can uh, be a little bit more frank. Yeah. Okay, so those are the four ways of gathering disciples. And you can see that if you, if you do that well and with a sincere motivation, then you can really benefit people. Now, and the opportunity to lead meditations, <coughs> to teach the Dharma, to even give advice to people on a personal level when they need advice. It's actually a great privilege to, uh, to be able to do that. And so to regard it as a privilege, not as a burden. Yeah, so don't think of teaching as a burden. But also don't think of it as, well, now I'm a big shot, you know. Um, because you know you have to continually come back to the motivation is for the benefit of the sentient beings so they don't fall into the lower realms so they don't have to stay stuck in cyclic existence. Okay, are there any questions about this topic before we go on? Mm -hmm. So you want to use the word teacher advisedly then. It's not everyone, even, you know, discussion leaders and whatever, they're not teachers. Right. Right. And that's what I was saying. It's a privilege to lead meditations or to give advice or counsel or lead a discussion group or whatever. You don't have to be a teacher to do that. Yeah. Uh, some people look at you when you do that as if, oh, you must be so advanced but not necessarily. Is that what your question is yeah, about? Yeah, so that you, you mean you don't ever want to call yourself a teacher unless you're really... Yeah. I mean, that, that's a very special word? Yeah, well, and you know, it's, it's this confusing kind of thing because Buddhism's never had a... Um, you know, you don't have to pass certain exams and do a meditation test and, uh, you know, get certified as a teacher. And it's only, it's always the students that make somebody into a teacher because you become a teacher when, this, when people come and ask you to teach. You know, you don't go and set yourself up and start teaching. But it's when people come to you and ask. However, nowadays it's not like that. Many people go and set themselves up. Yeah. But supposedly it's when people come to you and ask, or your teacher tells you to go and and you know do some things, you know, lead groups or whatever. Yeah. But just leading a group doesn't make you into a teacher. And, you know, leading meditation doesn't make you into a teacher. Same with discussion groups, all these kinds of things. 
it, the whole idea of you know it's it's really a vague thing and there's no you know stamp of authority and some people like to refer to themselves as teachers some people even say I'm a llama or I'm a this I'm a that you know and they get a whole bunch of different titles and then you have people like His Holiness who says you know I see myself as an older Dharma friend and I'm just sharing the Dharma with some people you know because I've had the opportunity to learn more and practice more so I'm just sharing with them so His Holiness doesn't see himself in that way but then he says when he has to give a tantric initiation he says okay now you have to see me as a teacher now I have to play this role Okay, but being a teacher is just a role. It's just a role. It's not who you are. And actually, from now until we become Buddhas, we're students, we're disciples. And so you may have the position of being a discussion group leader or a meditation group leader or whatever, you know, teaching people. But that's just a role that you play from time to time. Our actual thing from now until we become a Buddha is we are disciples and students. And so we should always, always see ourselves that way. You know, and not have this division into, well, those people are teachers and these people are students. Because if you're a teacher, you should also, you must also be a, a student. Yeah, and that's one thing to to look at, you know, when we look at other people, um, you know, are they students too? Or do they just set themselves up as teachers? Do they go, do they have teachers themselves? Do they go and study with their teachers? Do they respect their teachers? Yeah, or do they just see themselves now as a teacher and basically do what, you know, they want. Okay, because we're always teachers. I mean, we're always students. Always students. Okay, and so that's the reason why His Holiness says we should always be humble, you know, and not get anything into our head like, you know, now I have this title so I can boss everybody around. Actually, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I don't know if that fits so well, but in Guru Yoga, there you are supposed to ask your teacher if you are requested to teach yourself. So mm-hmm. yeah. right, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, if people ask you to teach, then you should request your teacher. You know, so and so asked me, is it okay? Yeah, or if people ask you to give initiation, you don't just go do it. You go and ask your teacher. Yeah. In my case, it was the opposite thing. I wanted to go meditate, and they kept telling me to go teach. So, yeah. So for a long time, I really, I resisted it, and then I realized, you know, gee, that was rather stupid because it's an opportunity to create a lot of merit, so I should, you know, I should rejoice at the opportunity instead of resisting. Any other questions about this? Okay, then we'll go on.
So um, then the way to conclude is as before with the dedication prayers and so on. And the way between meditation sessions was as before to read uh, the sutras and the commentaries and treatises that explain the vast and profound uh, bodhisattva practice. Okay, then the next section is training in the last two perfections in particular. So this has two parts, how to train in meditative serenity or shamatha, which is the essence of meditative stability, and how to train in insight or vipassana, the essence of wisdom. Okay, so we're doing the first one first, how to, you know, train in serenity. And so what to do in the actual meditation session, what to do between sessions. And then in the session, there's the preliminaries, the actual meditation, and the conclusion. Okay? So I'll just read from the text here and and make some comments as we go. So first, about the preliminaries to your session. The preliminaries consist of common and special preliminaries the latter being to train in the attitudes of the initial and intermediate beings. Okay? So, the common preliminaries, that was the six preliminaries that you do, cleaning your room, sitting at the altar, making offerings, visualizing the refuge objects, offering the seven limb prayer, making request prayers. Those are the common preliminaries. The special preliminary here, yeah, to train in the attitudes of the inter- initial and intermediate beings. Okay, so the initial beings are the ones who have the aspiration to have a good rebirth, and they take refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha and follow the law of karma and its effects in order to accomplish that. And then the intermediate capacity being is somebody who wants to get out of cyclic existence and they uh, meditate on the four truths of the Aryas and especially um, train in the path, the true path, so they can actualize the true cessation. So this makes it very clear here on the Bodhisattva practice because the question came up about where on the path do you generate serenity? You know, and remember I said, look at where it's taught, it's taught at the end of the, the six perfections. So here it's very clear that, you know, you, you must practice the, the practices in common with the initial capacity beings and with the intermediate capacity beings and then be engaging in some of the other bodhisattva practices and then, you know, really focus on shamatha. So you can focus on shamatha all during the path Okay, it's not like you ignore constant, you know, developing concentration and serenity and only do it, you know, at this level of the path. You train in it all along, but in terms of really, you know, developing total serenity, you know, this is where it's going to happen, kind of later on in the path. Okay, are people understanding that? Okay, so then he he talks about, um, so those are the preliminaries that you do. And now he talks a little bit about the um, uh, the kind of uh, also preliminaries and 
and a situation that you need to have in order to do a, uh, a strict retreat in which you're really sincerely trying to gain serenity. Okay, so to make an effort, first to have a favorable secluded environment. Yeah, so it means some place, you, you're not going to do your serenity retreat in the middle of the city. Okay, you're not going to do it in your bedroom with family pictures around, with the, you know, the children's toys all over the place, with your computer here and your handphone there and your tablet here, you know. Uh, you're not going to do it, uh, yeah, just in any old place. It needs to be a tranquil place, yeah, that's secluded where you don't have a lot of noise where uh, you can meditate in a healthy environment because if you keep getting sick then that's gonna you know affect your practice so a healthy kind of peaceful more secluded place yeah. of course the real seclusion is from the eight worldly concerns yeah but at least physically distance ourselves some, from some of the objects of attachment because that helps to decrease the attachment to them. Okay, then to have good, including good companions whose thinking is in harmony with yours. So you don't go off alone and practice all by yourself. Yeah, you're in a peaceful, secluded place with good companions whose thinking is in harmony with yours. In other words, these people are also Dharma practitioners. Probably they're also doing retreat, specifically um, serenity retreat or some other kind of retreat. Okay? So you're not going off and living, um, you know, with your friends who uh, are building geodesic domes out in the, the middle of nowhere. Yes, that's a quiet, secluded place, but these people's thinking may not be in line with yours. Yeah. So we need the good companions because they encourage us. You know, when we have difficulties in our meditation, we can talk with our, our Dharma friends, our Dharma companions, and say, okay, this is what's happening. Has that happened to you? You know, what advice do you have, or have you heard teachings on this, or has your teacher given you advice on this? So we're able to share, uh, you know, Dharma knowledge with these companions. When I lived in Dharamsala, um, now Dharamsala has gotten really populated with people and everything, but years ago it was quite quiet. Then one of my teachers, Geshe Eshitopten, he lived up in the mountains, and so you would walk up in McLeod. Dhamsala was here. McLeod was up the, up the hill. Tushita was further above that. And then you had to walk up and around. And then over here on the other side of the valley, you would see these little huts where there was some groups of meditators. So, that, you know, they had their own little hut, but they, um, you know, there was a group of them so that they you know, they could help each other. If somebody got sick or somebody had a question, you know, there were Dharma companions there. Also around the side of the mountain, there was another group of people. Genlum Rinpa, you know, had a cabin over there. And so again, they, they helped each other, you know. Okay. 
so um, yeah, and when I was in Tibet, I walked up one of the mountains to where some meditators were. And again, there was a whole cluster of them. They lived in different buildings, but, you know, near to each other. Okay, so good companions who think, whose thinking is in harmony with yours. And then you need to maintain pure ethical discipline. So that's very important um, because... If you don't have pure ethical discipline, first of all, you're going to waste a lot of time because you're busy doing non-virtue. Second of all, you're going to have a lot of regret and remorse, and that's going to you know, interfere with your concentration because you're just going to be filled with, oh, gee, why did I do that? I shouldn't have done that. That was really stupid, you know, and... Yeah, so it just creates an obstacle. And then, of course, you know, if you don't keep good ethical conduct, you create non-virtue. And non-virtue is certainly not going to be the cause of gaining dharma realizations, like, you know, generating serenity. You know, it has to be done on the basis of a virtuous mind. And then give up associating with numerous beings yeah, so, you know, your social life really has to stop, you know. It's not like you meditate uh, 9 to 5 and then in the evening you go out and, you know, ham it up with all your friends. Um, yeah, so you, you associate with your dharma, those few dharma friends when you need to, but you don't have a big social life. You're not on email, you know, keeping tabs with what everybody's doing and this and that. Okay, then also to give up coarse thoughts of attractions to, ob to objects of desire. Okay, so you have to really look at your mind and the coarse thoughts of objects of desire. You know, you are thinking about chocolate cake and, uh, you know, <laughs> certain kind of cookies that you really like and... Maybe I should get a new bicycle or a new car or what am I going to do after the retreat is over, you know, or what stage of calm about, you know, what stage of serenity am I on now so I can write home, I can write to my benefactors and tell them I'm making progress and then they'll send me something really nice. Um, you know, or checking in, um, you know, on the computer, you're checking your Facebook page, what your friends are doing, um, you know, or, or online shopping. You're in your mountain hut doing all your online shopping <laughs> because, you know, you need... Of course, you know, they're not going to deliver it to you out in the middle of nowhere. You have it sent to one of your disciples who brings it up to you. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, I need a new cushion, I need a new this, I need a new that. Okay, so uh, the mind, you know, running around with all of its thoughts of desire. Yeah? You mean there's no outfitter called Retreats Are Us that will supply you with every need, bowls, and Right, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, retreats are asked where you can order a new mala that will be delivered by the next morning, you know, in case your mala broke. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so, um, 
yeah, so give up associated with numerous beings and give up coarse thoughts of attraction to objects of desire. Yeah, and then to have few desires and be content with less. Okay, so to not always, I want this, I want that, I need this, I need that, but to, to cultivate contentment and specifically to cultivate contentment with having less. In other words, your retreat hut doesn't need to be the most decked out, you know, modern thing. I knew somebody who built, uh, spent some time and built a really, really nice retreat place. Yeah, I mean, it was better than any of the cabins around because this person was going to go and retreat for a long time. And really nice retreat place, carpeting, you know, in India, carpeting. And, um, you know, very nice. And then uh, that person got very involved with uh, helping everybody else with their visas. Yeah? And, and that's, that's what happened to their retreat. Now they became the big uh, visa advisor and, you know, trying to organize big visa things with the department, the regi foreign registration department, da 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 da. Yeah, so, and then their, their retreat place, uh, you know, then it became just kind of their home and they were, you know, doing regular things, not staying in retreat. So it's, you know, it's, um, you know, you really have to, you know, now normally we'd say, oh, somebody who's helping everybody else with their visas, that's really kind, you know, how compassionate they are. But the thing is, when you're supposed to be redoing retreat, that's not the time to be helping everybody with their visas. You people don't understand this. Wait until you try and stay in India for a long time. It is a headache with the visas. So, yeah. So there's always visa problems going on. Um, okay, so developing contentment uh, to, you know, what I have is good enough, you know. My clothes are good enough, my cushion's good enough, my stove is good enough, my whatever it is is good enough. So these same kind of things are things that, you know, we can also start working on now, especially the one of giving up thoughts of gross objects of, of uh, attachment and attraction, you know, to stop our mind whenever it starts going here and there and this and that. And, you know, sometimes it's not even for ourselves, but gee, the monastery needs the latest this and that. Yeah. And, you know, learn to <laughs> cultivate an attitude of compassion. We don't necessarily need the latest this and that. Okay. And to, to learn to cultivate, you know, this, this sense of um, what I have is, is good enough. Yeah. If there's something that I really need, that's one thing. But if it's just the mind that wants to have the best and the most recent this and that, then that mind, you know, if we don't do something with it now, then when we want to do retreat, we're going to have to do something with it then, and it's going to slow us down. Okay? So developing a sense of contentment. And it's really nice, too, when you develop a sense of contentment. Yeah. And it's good, you know, if we just make it our practice, you know, like, like sometimes, okay, 
whatever served for lunch, it may not be the kind of food that, that you like so much. Yeah, or you might like it with more salt or less salt or, you know, with more chili sauce or less chili sauce or whatever. But it's good just to make it a practice as I accept what I'm given. You know, here we have our choice so often with all five godzillion condiments, you know, you could go crazy trying to figure out which ones to put on your dish. But, um, you know, but developing a, a sense of contentment, you know, what is offered is good enough. I don't need to, you know, always comment on the cooking or ask for special food or whatever, this and that, you know. Whatever robes were given um, is good enough. However many sweaters we have, you know, one to wear and one to wash, good enough, yeah. And so to, to really cultivate that sense of, tra of uh, contentment. It's a big blessing now, and then it really helps when you want to do retreat. Yeah? What about you people who did three months retreat this last winter? Did you have any thoughts about objects of desire? Yes. Oh, you're all so quiet and peaceful now. My winter boots have been too big. I wish they had smaller. What? <laughs> Every time I was pulled up by my winter boots because they are too big. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, you wanted new winter boots. Yeah. Oh. No, I found a way to trick around getting some more stuff in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just deal with what you have. Yes. Okay. So. Yeah. But did any thoughts of desire come up? You don't remember? Gosh, I thought about Shane's pizza a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you thought about cheese pizza? Shane's pizza. Shane's pizza. Shane's pizza. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. He made good pizza. Huh? Okay. What did you think about? Well, I'm trying to remember. I, I was mostly wanting it to be warmer in there. It was about, yeah. It was more about the temperature, not needing a coat, but needing the heat to yes. be consistent. Okay, so it's too hot, it's too yeah. cold. Yeah. Why is that person opening the window when I'm cold? Why are they closing the window when I'm hot? And we're not supposed to have the heat cranked up this high, why do they do that? Yeah. <laughs> All of those kinds of things. Yeah. And also wanting it to be Yes. That's mostly, that was my big idea. Oh, that was your big thing. Why are these people making so much noise? They move around in their meditation, they turn their pages, they click their malas, and they breathe. <laughs> yes. Yes, we have somebody in the community who yawns very loud. I don't think they're even aware of it. I don't think they are. You know, but, <laughs> but you can always hear it. <laughs> you know everybody's habits when you do retreat with them. <laughs> so that was my object. <laughs> you should have brought it up in a skit. I, I couldn't do it without. Um, I couldn't do it without a barb. I oh. that, but I, I couldn't do it. <laughs> someday I will. <laughs> okay. So uh, where were we here? Okay. So having sat on a comfortable seat. So it does say comfortable seat, 
But, but mind you, you will never find a perfect seat. No matter how much you change cushions, you will never find the perfect A1 number not needing to change comfortable seat. Okay, your body's straight. Yeah, your legs in Vajra posture. Your hands in the meditative absorption position, so right on left, thumbs touching to form a triangle, that's in your lap. And then calm your breath. In other words, uh, watch the breath for a few minutes to calm the mind down. Over the weekend, uh, you know, His Holiness, we had read in the book where he taught about the, um, the breathing meditation. You know, he had you inhale uh, with this, no, in, inhale with this finger, with your thumb, and then exhale with this. Can't remember? And then to switch and do it with the left nostril and then do it with both nostrils. There's several other nine-round nine breathing meditations. They're not all that particular one. Okay, but to calm your breath can be very helpful before you start meditating. Um, you know, just to, yeah, focus on your breath and, and uh, when you're exhaling, you know, um, imagine you're exhaling ignorance, anger, and attachment. Okay, then having thus prepared the conditions for attaining serenity, so it means the external conditions, and your internal ones of having a good motivation and doing your practice in accordance with the initial and intermediate capacity being, um, now engage in the actual meditation. Although the Buddha taught many objects in relationship to which serenity can be attained, the prime object and the ideal one is recollection of the Buddha. Okay, so the Buddha taught many, many different objects. Um, in the Pali tradition, they have a whole list of uh, objects in the, um, from Maitreya's teachings on it. There's a whole list of objects. But he's saying the prime object is the recollection of the Buddha. So it is good to visualize a deity's form. So it could be Buddha Shakyamuni, or it could be, uh, you know, Chenrezig or Manjushri or like that. Okay? So it is good to visualize a deity's form because doing so serves many purposes, such as preparing you for meditating on tantric deity yoga. Okay? So if you train with the Buddha or with a, a deity as the object of meditation, it gets you going already in this whole process of visualization and making a connection with a deity, which will definitely come up when you get to the point of, of entering the tantric vehicle. Also, by focusing on the Buddha, then you, you know the image of the Buddha is really imprinted in your mind, and then it feels to you like the Buddha's there with you all day long wherever you're going. Okay? You know how when you first fall in love with somebody it's you're thinking of that person all day long, it's like they're always with you? Well here it's like that too, you know. The other one's the object of attachment. This one isn't an object of virtue. But you really get the feeling like the Buddha's with you all the time. And so then, you know, you feel inspired, you watch your ethical conduct 
better. Um, you know, you just you build up a real close emotional relationship with the Buddha in this way. Okay, so very very helpful. Yeah, and then when you die, again the image of the Buddha is there right with you, and you can die thinking of the Buddha, which you know is what we want to do, isn't it? Because if we die thinking of the three jewels and taking refuge, then uh, you know there's no way that negative karma can ripen and throw us into the lower realms at that point. Okay, so um, so meditate one-pointedly, visualizing that from the heart of the Guru Buddha on your head, okay, because remember at this point in the practice we have the Guru Buddha on our head, okay, a tiny light ray like a spider thread is emitted on its tip in the space in front of you at the level of your navel, visualize on a seat of multicolored lotus, sun, and moon discs um, is your kind main spiritual mentor in the form of the conqueror Shakyamuni. Okay, so this is a little bit different than what's usually taught. I haven't heard it this way, where with a, you know, the ray of light coming from the guru on your head and it being at the level of the navel. Usually they say if your mind is very distracted, then to make the object lower. But usually they say it's the object is in front of you here. Yeah, because if you start out with it low, then your head may tend to sag and also your mind may get a little bit dull. So this explanation here is not like how it's usually taught. Yeah, and remember over the weekend His Holiness's instruction was the, the, um, the Buddha was about four inches tall. Yeah, and here uh, it's the size of a kidney bean. Oh, I didn't read that sentence. Mm. Okay, the color of his body is pure gold, made of pure light and adorned with the signs and marks of a Buddha. Um, he is the size of a kidney bean. So kidney bean is this big. Yeah, so down here the size of the kidney bean. Yeah. Is, that's very different. So, you know, if you want to do it the way we usually do it, you know, in front of you, uh, they usually say about a body's length or so uh, in front of you, and then about four inches tall. If you make the image too big, you know, there's a huge, enormous Buddha, then it's easy to get distracted. If you make the image too small, then it's, your mind may get very tight. Okay, so you have to make it a size that is comfortable for you. Okay, but but whatever it is, the Buddha is made of uh, light. Yeah? When we do the visualization of um, Shakyamuni Buddha for the, the um, practice we do at the beginning of this teaching, mm -hmm. is, are we doing a similar size? Yeah, I mean, it's in front of you and, okay, yeah, similar kind of size. Okay, um, then he says an alternative is to meditate one-pointedly, visualizing that from the Guru Buddha on your head comes a second Guru Buddha, like one butter lamp lighting another. Okay, so you don't have the string of the thread of light here. It's just one another Buddha emerges. Okay, 
And that Buddha dissolves into you, and then you dissolve into emptiness, and you visualize yourself on a precious throne, both high and wide, supported by eight great snow lions on a seat of multicolored lotus sun and moon disk as the conqueror Shakyamuni, and go through the whole visualization, the description of what the Buddha looks like, that came at the beginning of the text, you know, his right hand uh, on the earth-touching position, his left hand holding a, um, an alms bowl filled with nectar, and he's wearing the three robes, and, and so on and so forth. Okay? So you can do it either with the Buddha in front, or if dissolve yourself into emptiness and appear as the Buddha. And I would say doing that it's probably better to have a, a tantric initiation to do that. Although Lama Zopa, he asked one of his teachers if it was okay to have people at the meditation course do it, and his teacher said yes. So it could probably be okay that way too, to imagine yourself as the Buddha. Okay, but, okay, adorned with the signs and marks of a Buddha who appears but lacks inherent nature like a rainbow in the sky. So it's not like, there am I, I am the Buddha. You know, an inherently existent me in this same body, you know, except we're visualizing ourselves in per perfect meditation position and I'm the Buddha. Not like that. Okay, you have to dissolve into emptiness and then the body of the Buddha appears like a rainbow. It appears, but there's nothing there that you can touch. Okay, it lacks inherent nature. So there has to be that kind of appearance. At this point, if you wish to meditate on a yellow object and it appears red, or if you wish it seated, that you want the Buddha seated, but it appears the Buddha appears standing up, or you wish to meditate on one Buddha and all of a sudden a few of them appear, okay, do not follow these appearances but meditate one-pointedly, maintaining the original object. Yeah? So people get all sorts of experiences, and some of them are quite enchanting. I mean, there's one fellow, oh, he writes me, he starts off with one meditation practice, and he's meditating one thing and doing this, and then another deity appears at the heart of the one he's meditating on, and that one it comes on the, his head, and he dissolves and appears as the third deity, and then he's radiating light out this, and then he wants to do the long rim meditation, and then he comes back and does, you know, bliss, and the, you know, uh, and, and your meditation becomes kind of like your own... Um, self-created um, magic show <laughs> what? magic show but yeah so it becomes a show like a, a performance your own yeah okay and you make it exciting and one this and one that and, and then of course your imagination takes over so like you said you know you, there's a yellow Buddha now the Buddha becomes blue so you start to think oh maybe I should be meditating on 
medicine Buddha, because a, a, a blue Buddha is coming to me very naturally, not a yellow Shakyamuni Buddha. So maybe I'm going to shift and change my object. I, you know, this is an indication I should be meditating on medicine Buddha. So I maybe maybe I should shift my object meditation to medicine, medicine Buddha. Okay, and then you do that. And then it's blue in color, but then you have three or four medicine Buddhas. So which one is your primary object? Okay, and then all, you know, so you do that for a while. And then, uh, and then you know, all this blue color, it just all of a sudden all these medicine Buddhas come together. And there's Yamantaka, and so Yamantaka <laughs> should be my object of meditation. Yeah. Because, you know, this is all just coming naturally from your mind. Because we have an overactive, imaginative mind. Yeah? You know? And our mind can imagine anything. And it gets distracted by anything. I mean, if you let it, you know, like if I let my mind, I can see zillions of faces coming in and so many faces of different people going here and there and I could probably create a story about it and you know oh, that must mean I have connection with all these people and maybe I should look for them and you stop none of that zero finish <laughs> it's all distraction okay <laughs> yeah so you have your object of meditation, and you stay with that one. Okay. Even you're having these fantastic appearances, and so much light, and going here and there, and up and down and across. Okay. So that may happen to some people. Other people says, although at first it will not appear clearly or made of light. When, when the mental image of about half the body parts is clear, meditate on it, focusing your mind one-pointedly. So here, he completely acknowledges, at first your object of meditation is not going to be clear. And it's not going to be made of light. Yeah. And you're visualizing the Buddha, and you get some kind of golden blob, that's kind of in the shape of a human being. Yeah? Yeah, that about right? Okay. So then you think, oh, I'm doing it all wrong. I can't visualize. My meditation's a mess. My object of meditation isn't clear. I can't tell you. You know, some, some people, since the retreat last week, have come to say, oh, my object of meditation isn't clear. Well, yeah, so... You think you're extraordinary. <laughs> yeah? No, it's completely normal. When you start a practice, you, it's not clear. Yeah, when we start anything, when you sit in front of a typewriter, remember when you were learning to type and you sat in front of a typewriter? Could you type quickly at the beginning? No, you know. When you're learning to drive a car, do you sit down and you automatically have the feel of the car and how much you have to turn the wheel to get it to go around the corner but not go into the ditch while you're going around the corner? Do you have that instinctive feeling in your body yet? No. Okay. So all these things, it's just, of course, at the beginning, it's not clear. And, and it's not consistent. 
Yeah. That this is just the way it is. Okay? So don't get worried about things. And and then if you tell me, well, what should I do? My object of meditation isn't clear. I'm going to tell you just keep practicing the instructions that you've given, you've received. And what is the antidote for forgetting the object? What's the antidote? What do you need? Mindfulness. Because mindfulness is the memory of the object that allows you to focus on it without going off to other objects. Yeah, so what do you need to really cultivate in yourself? Mindfulness, you know, to keep the mind on the object. Yeah, if the object's some kind of blurry thing, that's okay. Yeah, your pizza's very clear. Your hot fudge sundae's very clear. Yeah, your, your, um, what is it? The German like dark rye bread. Yes. So that is so clear, you know. <laughs> and then there's Buddha sitting on a piece of German, you know, rye bread. <laughs> sitting on a Instead of on a lotus sun and moon, there's the Buddha on Shane's pizza. You know, <laughs> the pizza's clear, the Buddha's not. <laughs> you know, but your visualization of the pizza's very clear. So it's not that you can't visualize. You can. Focus on the pizza. Yeah. No, you don't focus on the pizza. <laughs> you come back to your initial object. Okay, so this is all very, very normal. Okay, um, what they what they say is, uh, you know, here he says when you get about half the body of the Buddha, then focus on it. Uh, my teachers and the all the other instructions I've received don't even go that far. They say, you know, when you start out, you you create the, you know, you imagine like it's the full Buddha coming in. It's not like you visualize a head and then you add an arm and add another arm. And, no, not like that. You visualize the whole Buddha, but you start with the face and you focus on different details so that they become a little bit clearer. And in that way you go through the whole general you know, features of the Buddha and what the Buddha looks like. And when you've gone through the features, it may not be totally clear, but it's clearer than it was when you sat down. And whatever you have, then you focus on that. Yeah? And if there's one part of the Buddha's body, you know, maybe that, that really is attractive to you, that you can focus on more easily, you can focus on that aspect of the body, but it's not like there's just that aspect and not the rest of the body, you know? Okay, so, you know, like the Buddha's face, I think the Buddha's eyes are so beautiful, you know, they're long and narrow and compassionate, and, you know, I like looking at the Buddha's eyes, but that doesn't mean that there's just two eyes out in 
empty space or two eyes on a lotus sun and moon seated, you know, or some head floating in the clouds or something. No, the whole Buddha's body is there. But, you know, you might focus just on the image of the Buddha's face. Okay. And then in that way, you, you stay on the image as long as you can. If the image starts to fade, then you go through the details again and refresh them and remind yourself of what they're, they're like. And then you focus again on it. And like His Holiness said in, in the book, um, do short sessions, like five minutes. Yeah, just short and sweet sessions, then open your eyes, look around for a minute, close your eyes and do it again. Okay? Uh-huh. The, the features that are are they also clear light? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the features are, are whatever color the features are, okay? The Buddha's hair is dark blue and whatever, but, but the whole body is made of, of light. So whatever color it is, it's light in that color. Okay? Now, what's your question? Then? The light, I mean, is it like, like a light, like crystal light? Like, um, like water, like an ice cube, like something like bright or is it the actual color you see of, of a photo that you use but just a, all those colors are brightened it it's it's like it's made of light like it's translucent or transparent okay 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 but it has color it has color okay like a rainbow okay okay the rainbow has color but you can put your hand right through it okay it's there's nothing solid there Okay, so you're not thinking of the Buddha as a statue or, you know, there's some person there that you can, you know, with a solid body that you can touch, not like that. But, it, but it's alive, so to speak. Yeah. It's boobs or whatever. It's there. Mm -hmm. Okay. He makes pizza. Okay, uh, any other questions so far? Yeah. A lot of the sun has come up a mantra or a symbol at the heart. Mm -hmm. I don't remember hearing that here. Is that the same yeah. Well, that's the when you're doing deity yoga or, or uh, a deity practice, then there's usually a symbol at the heart. Here, you're just visualizing the Buddha, you know, like that. They're not talking about uh, things at the heart. Although, you know, you could do the Omahum if you want to. Yeah. And um, I was also wondering that um, should, should, is it important to be cultivating that sense of the compassionate feeling of being in the presence of the Buddha? Yeah. Yeah, and I think and I think that comes kind of naturally, you know, as you visualize the Buddha, then you feel like you're in the presence of a very compassionate person, and then it rubs off on you. Yeah, and you feel more compassionate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you visualize yourself as a Buddha, um, that's referring to Buddha Shakyamuni, not to the deities that we can could visualize. Also, you could do that as part of you know when you have a deity yeah. initiation. No, I mean without the initiation, only for clarification for people who don't have the initiation. And, um, yeah, for people who don't have the initiation, yeah. then it's just visualizing. You can visualize yourself as the Buddha, but don't do it with any of the right. other deities. Yeah. 
one feature of the Buddha? Do we stay focused on that feature for the whole session? Yeah, I mean, it's it's that feature. What if it's like really appearing strongly to you? You're focused on that feature, but you're aware of the entire body there. It's kind of like when you look at somebody in the room. Yeah, you may look at their face, but you're aware of their whole body there. Oh, okay, so the difference between lamas and venerables and this and that. You know, there there's gazillions of titles and they're used in all different sorts of ways. Okay? Some people like to have lots of titles, some people don't like to have titles. Usually we use venerable for somebody who's a monastic. Yeah, uh, the title lama is usually given to somebody who's a teacher. But, for example, if people call me Lama, I say forget it, you know, because that's a title that I use for my teachers and I'm not the quality of my teachers. Whereas, so I just say, you know, you know, I'm a nun, so it's, yeah, venerable children or bhikshuni children, that's fine, yeah. Then other people, you know, they want to be called Lama, um, especially, you know, if somebody's a lay teacher, then they, they would like a title, so Lama's the easiest one. So you don't know if they have the, you know, what kind of level they're at or not, you know? And, and um, Geshe is an education degree, people who have taken, a, you know, uh, Geshe in the Gulu and Kenpo like in the, uh, the uh, Kargyu and I think Nyingma as well, then, you know, they're education degrees. But Kenpo in Gilu means something different than Kenpo in, in Kargyu does. Okay? And then people who have done the three years retreat, they often get the title Lama. That doesn't mean they teach. It may just mean that they've done their Nundro. Um, and then other people have done their Nundro, but they haven't done it in a three-year retreat context. So... It's all um, very hard to t say. And even the title Rinpoche, you know. Sometimes it's used for somebody who's a recognized incarnate. Sometimes it's used as a title of respect for your own teacher who is not a recognized incarnate. And then even among recognized incarnates, there's all different sorts of levels. Some are bodhisattvas, some aren't bodhisattvas just because of karma that they've, you know, they were recognized. So it's, uh, you know, there it's all different varieties. You, the point is you cannot tell from a title what level somebody's at. Yeah? His Holiness always tells the, the Rinpoche's who are incarnates, don't rest on the laurels of your previous life and the title you have. You have to practice hard this life. So the basic thing is to do as it says in the scriptures, which is check out the qualities of a teacher. You know, don't rely on titles, don't rely on how the color of their hat or the size of their hat, don't rely on how big the throne is and how much brocade they have, don't rely on how many, you know, people are following them around. Rely on their qualities. Look at their, you know, listen to their teachings, see if they teach uh, according to the basic Buddhist principles, look at how they treat people. See if they're compassionate and care for others. 
ask them Dharma questions, see if you know they, they can, uh, you know, have the knowledge to answer them. Yeah. So don't rely on any of these external things to choose your teachers, because it doesn't work. Okay. Anything else? Yeah. I had a question. I've been opening my eyes during meditation. Oh yeah, you should I, have your eyes a little bit open. Because I find myself getting dull. But for the visualization, yeah. the Buddha is not going to be out there if your eyes are open. Right. Well, you keep your eyes open, and even though they're, you know, it prevents dullness, but mm -hmm. it's they're down in front of you. But you're not really looking at anything. So it's in, with your mental consciousness that you're visualizing the Buddha. I guess, so why is it always described as a four-inch Buddha out here? As compared to what? What do you want it to be? Well, I mean, do you visualize the image out here? Yeah, the, the image, you know, because we, we tend to be spacious beings, you know, you, you think of the Buddha in the space in front of you. Yeah. But I guess if my eyes are open, I'm but yeah, but you shouldn't let your eyes being open distract you. It's just you're not looking at anything with your eyes open because your eyes are lowered. It's just that some light's coming in. So you're not looking at anything. So your eyes could be directed there, a little bit open, but you still have the image of the Buddha here. Because you're not oh, really looking like at anything. Here and your eyes are down. Yeah. So here we are, right smack in the middle of a section, and uh, we're going to pause. <laughs> okay? So, but I think that's enough definitely for you to get going on, don't you think so? May the spiritual teachers who lead me on the sacred path and all spiritual friends who practice it have long life. May I pacify completely all outer and inner hindrances, grant such inspiration, I pray. May the lives of the venerable spiritual mentors be stable and their virtuous actions spread in the ten directions. May the light of Lopsam's teachings dispelling the darkness of the beings in the three worlds always increase. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious body mind not yet born arise and grow. May that born have no decline, but increase forevermore. In the snowy mountain pure land, you're the source of good and happiness. Powerful Tenzin Gyatso Chen Resi, 
May you stay until samsara ends. May the deeds of explaining and practicing the Dharma done by groups supporting the teachings and their upholders who spread the view of dependent arising and non-violent actions in ten directions, and especially at Shravastiyami in the West Floor.